0: Welcome back to the Church for the Rest of Us podcast. I'm here with my co-host and Family Church Communications Director, Leslie Bennett. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Jimmy. (laughs) Today, we're going to be talking about something that's super important to us. It's one of our distinctives at Family Church. We're talking about moving towards a more multicultural church.
1: This is really who we've become here at Family Church. A lot thanks to your leadership, Jimmy, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts. I would encourage people to go back and listen to episodes four and episodes 38 where we covered this topic. But why don't you just tell us a little bit why this is so important?
0: Well, I think being inclusive is important for a couple of reasons. One, it's a biblical imperative. Jesus said that we're supposed to share the gospel with people from every nation, every kind of person. And so the way we articulate that at Family Church is we are trying to reach every person in every neighborhood in South Florida. And uh, in just a minute, we're going to talk about this topic with my friend, Noe Garcia, pastor from North Phoenix Baptist Church and how he's done this with his church. But before we do, I just want to remind our listeners to register for this year's Sharper Conference sponsored by the Florida Baptist Convention. You can register today at sharperconference.com. All right, Noe, it's always great to talk to you. I'm so glad that you're with us on Church for the rest of us. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Talk a little bit about your family and tell us where you're serving in ministry.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. It's an absolute honor. So my name is Noe Garcia, and uh, I have four sweet children and been married for eight years. In fact, almost nine now. Two When's your boys, anniversary? It's March 27th, two
0: thousand. Oh, coming up.
1: It's coming up.
0: Tell so, us about your church. Yeah, so we are North Phoenix Baptist Church. Right, I mean, ten minutes
1: from downtown, really central Phoenix, just right in the middle of, of everything, and so I absolutely love it.
0: Now, Noe, before you became the senior pastor at North Phoenix, what did you do in ministry prior to that?
1: I was a college pastor at Cross Church with Dr. Ronnie Floyd, so I did that for about three years, and honestly, I thought I was going to be a lifelong college pastor. Man, I loved it; it was uh, felt natural, felt felt fun, easy, and so weren't weren't really any big mountains I had to climb.
0: (laughs) So I thought,
1: I'm going to do this for the rest of my life.
0: And then what happened uh, to you?
1: Well, there was a season where I knew God was doing something. Within six months, I probably had four different churches call me to be a senior pastor. And so the first two phone calls, I really just kind of dismissed. The third one, I started kind of asking the question, God, are you you trying to get a hold of me and tell me something here? The fourth one was North Phoenix Baptist Church. And when they said they have been listening to me and following me for six months, and they really believe that God has led them to me to have a discussion about becoming the senior pastor. And so, um, honestly, I told them I would pray about it, but there was a strong chance I wasn't going anywhere. But um, I've always tried to live just with uh, giving God a blank check to my life, being ready to go anytime He calls me to go. And so the more I prayed, God really began to do something in my heart and my wife's heart as well. Um, Long story short, six months later— uh, we're accepting the position.
0: That's a pretty incredible story, Knowing Now, you know, I had, the, you know, family church. This is the first time I've ever been a senior pastor or a lead pastor in a church before, and I had staff roles before that, just like you did. Uh, why don't you share a little bit about the transition, the difference from being a staff pastor to being a lead pastor or a senior pastor?
1: My goodness, man, I, I speak to this all the time to our staff, but I didn't realize the weight that the senior pastor carried i didn't realize how much more i could have done to have the senior pastors back not that i was divisive any means but i didn't realize the intentionality i could have had as a staffer really lifted up my my senior pastor's arm or there are times that I was questioning why my senior pastor wasn't spending a lot of time with me. And I thought, well, maybe he just doesn't care about me or he doesn't value me or he didn't see anything in me because he's never hanging out with me or he's not at my house or he doesn't invite me over to his house. And it's interesting because now that I'm in this seat, I have my staff that often ask the same question like, hey, are you mad at me? You never have us over. And not realizing, man, balancing a church, having four children, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing. And so it's not that I don't love them. It's often that time is really a restraint. And I wish I wasn't so petty and being so self-centered when I was a staffer. I think I could have done a lot more good for my senior pastor. That's interesting knowing from my perspective. So if you were going to talk to people who serve on a staff, what would you tell them that they can do to encourage their lead pastor, their senior pastor?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Answer this one really good.
1: (laughs) Number one, be ready to extend grace to the senior pastor. I have recognized most of the conversations that I have with my staffers, or even church members for that matter, specifically staffers, they always landed to a point that wasn't true because they failed to give me grace or give me the benefit of the doubt. So mm-hmm. landing to the point to where I now have a staff spouse who's bitter at me because the husband has been going home sharing some things about how the pastor just doesn't invest in them, uh, which now made the wife upset with the pastor. And that could have been avoided mm-hmm. if the staffer would have come straight to me and shared how they felt. I could have cleaned it up and it never would have went home. Now we're trying to repair a wife, which in my experience, I have found it's very hard to do.
0: <laughs> because me, I'm
1: being honest. Me and the staffer, we will make up, we'll reconcile, we'll go to lunch, we'll high five. But the wife on Sunday morning is still giving me the stink eye.
0: <laughs> yeah, you got to preach like, good for a long time now, man.
1: Well, and it, yeah, you're right. And what happens is they normally don't last long on staff. Mm, yeah. But not only that, what I tell our staffers is, it is selfish of you because you get to reconcile. Your wife doesn't to some extent. And now you have ruined her worship. She can't even come to service anymore and listen to the message because you have ruined it because you didn't do the biblical thing and come to talk to me first and get this settled. And so I would say grace. My goodness, extend grace to the seat and be willing to go have a talk and, and share how you're feeling. Number two, don't sit on the fence when, when you're going to have lay people as a staffer who love you and trust you more than the senior pastor because you're the direct shepherd of the ministry. So when the senior pastor makes a decision about something and a lay person comes to you and wants to know for you to sit on the fence and not give confidence that you support the senior pastor, you have just ruined, you know, where the senior pastor is trying to take you. You have have caused division without even having to say anything negative. And so I would say to be proactive, as Paul says, to fight and strive for unity. I tell our staffers all the time, if you feel like you cannot, with great integrity, support me in private, you don't need to be on this team. Because if you don't feel like you can get behind the mission of the team, which is biblical, I'm not sure you need to be in this seat. I don't want to have to worry about friendly fire coming from the people that I have surrounded myself with.
0: Well, way no, I just share some of those experiences. You know, I worked for Kevin Ezel in Louisville for almost 13 years, and boy, I have the same thoughts. I, I There are times I, I wish I would have done a better job being a faithful pastor uh, under his leadership than I did. But I'm so grateful for the things that I learned and, you know, in ways that I wasn't even realizing he was preparing me for the role that I have now. And I hope that I'm able to do the same thing for ladies and for men that are on our team here. Anyway, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Tell us how you grew up. Tell us about your mom and dad, your family. Tell us about that kind of thing.
1: Absolutely. My dad's from Mexico. He grew up in Mexico. He was born and raised
0: in Mexico. All right. Um, was a brilliant man, had seven brothers and sisters,
1: and my dad was the only one in his family who had a full scholarship based off his education to go to college, but his dad didn't allow him to go. He said, if the rest of the kids can't go to school, you're not going to school either. And so um, my mother came from a home that was a bit abusive. She had a large family as well. Eighth grade, my mom and my father ended up moving away from their homes in Texas, so my father, at this point, migrated to Houston, Texas, where I'm from. My mother, eighth grade, was tired of living at home because of the abuse she was facing. So they, my mom was pregnant at age 16, had my sister. And uh, my father was, was incredibly abusive to my mom. I uh, would beat her uh, physically, abuse her verbally. He was an alcoholic. Uh, I heard stories, how they called him the Coke man, because he used Coke and sold Coke. So these are the kind of things that... that you know, I was, in, I guess, uh, involved with to some degree through living with my father. You know, he would hand me a beer to drink at a very young age. And that was kind of me becoming a man. I uh, would see him often beat my mother. And so uh, my parents ended up divorcing at age about five or six. They, they, they divorced. Um, never really saw my dad again. And so what that did for me is I became just really insecure in who I was as a young man. So I started getting involved in gangs. Throwing up gang signs, taking gang pictures, writing gang symbols everywhere. I began drinking. I began, you know, became involved in in all kinds of immorality and really in pursuit. Of trying to find who I was. And so really the streets of Houston, along with uh, Biggie and Tupac, mentored me and raised me. So
0: <laughs> Some great mentors right wow. there. Well, how did Jesus get involved with you? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Jesus got involved 18 years old. I played basketball in high school, and I thought I was big stuff, and I'm going to play college basketball. Long story short, made some very poor decisions where some people threatened to take my life. I ended up uh, attempting suicide at age 18 because I felt like if if God was real, he didn't love me. He overlooked me, and I didn't stand a chance, and therefore I didn't want to live anymore. So I attempted suicide. didn't work, obviously, but it was a wake-up call. I began to prepare myself to go play basketball at East Texas Baptist University. And uh, I would go to an open gym in Houston that was really geared towards targeting rough kids. I didn't know I was a rough kid then. I thought I was Mm -hmm. just a kid. But it was geared towards targeting us, and they would make us stay and and hear a devotion. So long story short, I went for two years, and finally I came forward, and I just prayed. I said, God, I don't know if you're real, but if you are, here's my life. So give me my sins. I called my girlfriend, who I was about to move in with. been dating for three years. Broke it off. And I just I just had a, a, a willing heart, a willing spirit. So here I am, Jesus. Use me for your glory. never thought it'd be ministry, hmm. but Jesus came in at the age of 18. So I ended up going to East Texas Baptist University. I majored in sports medicine, minor in religion. And from there, the rest was history. God began opening up doors for the ministry that I he made very clear from him. And so here I am.
0: Well, it's a good thing that somebody with your story could never possibly possibly become a pastor
1: (laughs) well i thought that was my reality to be honest with you you know even even when i went to the university i didn't know where i fit to be honest with you i was i was a inner city kid who was what they would call pretty ghetto pretty hood uh, with tattoos on my arms and i still spoke with a lot of slang and so i felt like i wasn't white enough for the white kids but at the same time i wasn't brown enough for the brown kids And so I feel like I've lived most of my life like that, not really understanding where I fit and who I am to some degree. Even as a pastor, I still struggle with that, even from the pulpit or from a leadership perspective.
0: Let's talk about that for a second, Noe, because uh, you're the first Hispanic pastor to lead your church, the first non-Anglo pastor to lead your church. And uh, you and I have had many conversations about this because we're good friends. Talk about some of the challenges that that in itself has created. Yeah, you know, some can be
1: self-inflicted because of the simple mind games that I play with myself or being oversensitive to certain things, but then there are others that are reality that I thought that often pushed me to thinking the things I think. I want to be very careful because what I'm going to share is not the bride that I'm shepherding now. It was the bride to some degree that I first inherited, but it's not the same church anymore. Uh, the church i have now incredibly loving loving people who embrace who i am the church i inherited who didn't know what to do john shillington's been here 35 years he would say the church was probably 95 percent caucasian easy when you look on the staff i was the only minority apart from the janitors and so now you inherit a a what seems to be a high profile church financially Well off people, uh, 95% Caucasian. I come into this, average age, I don't know, 60,
0: 65. You sound uh, like a great fit, to be honest with
1: you. Wow, yeah,
0: perfect. It
1: (laughs) it was the thing of God. I don't don't know how I said yes to this position, (laughs) honestly. And so, you know, very early on, I felt like I faced intellectual racism. You know, then I, I received several anonymous letters telling me. This isn't Mexico. Go back to Mexico. I got emails. People call me a hip-hop pastor. Which I, don't know <laughs> really, I don't even know what that means. I would Clearly, that. they
0: and, didn't either. I would take that as a compliment <laughs> if it was <laughs> exactly. to me, but no yeah. one's ever sent that to uh, me. I
1: guess so. But, and mm-hmm. so, you know, we received, we got a Facebook message from one time. Somebody sent me a, a selfie on the video telling me to come do their yard since I'm the Mexican. You know, they hired. It was just, it was very degrading things that my first year here at my wife, it, it really put us through a time of depression. I think I had a, somewhat of a breakdown. I didn't know what to do. I, I began hating my skin color. I felt that if I was white, it would be easier. But the funny thing is when I asked my white pastor friends, they'd say, no, that's that's what I'm experiencing too. <laughs> but, but to be in a position to where you feel like your skin color is a barrier and you can't change it and you can't run because God's not releasing you was a very hard place to be. And I felt like I started at a negative, you know, especially being in Phoenix, where very high immigration population, a people's framework to see a Hispanic. When you look at a Hispanic, I think we all have this inherited systematic racism to some degree where you put people in categories based off their appearance. And so now you've asked the all Caucasian church to follow a Hispanic when the majority of the Hispanics. That you will see are day laborers or immigrants, but now you're asking them to follow me and to understand that I'm smart enough and I'm capable of leading them. I think that was a lot of my challenges. Now, I want to be very careful because I don't want to come off as, oh, here we go again, playing the brown card, or here's the victim, because I fought very hard to not play the victim card and not to think it's because I'm brown. Uh, Now, sometimes the actual letters that I receive force me to think otherwise and to think, well, it is because I'm brown. Whether it's true or not, God knows exactly what I was going to experience when he called me here. Uh, He knew exactly who I was going to be when he gave me the last name Garcia. He knew all these things. And so what I'm having to learn to do, even when I don't like my last name or even when I don't like if I'm too brown, what I'm having to do is embrace my identity that God has given me And embrace being
0: a culture changer. And this is part of what needs to Noah, you have been a culture changer. And, And let me, I would like to, I appreciate you being so vulnerable and sharing this with me and with our listeners, but what I'd like to do just for a minute though, let's pivot because you and I have had some tremendous conversations, some tearful conversations over the years, but let's talk about where your church is now, because God has actually used you and everything that you are to completely transform your church. And now your church is almost like, it's like weaponized to reach Phoenix in a way that it never has been before. Talk about where your church is right now today. Yeah,
1: I am unbelievably proud of this church. I'm so proud of this church. It's, it's, um, we've gone from probably 95% Caucasian to probably 60-40. It's unbelievable what God has done. Uh, We have, man, I don't even know, at least 50 different languages represented, if not more. And our staff, our staff is unbelievably diverse. Now, that wasn't even intentional, to be honest with you. What I did when I was going through a tough time of revitalization, I hired people that I knew and that I trusted and that could do the job. It just so happens that in my circle, it's a very diverse group of people. So if you were to go on our webpage now and see our staff, what you are seeing is a reflection of who I'm friends with, honestly, but who are very capable of doing the job. And so the church is night and day different, 100% new church.
0: Well, I love to hear that story. And Noe, I've loved just getting to know you over the last several years and meeting your team. And it's so incredible. And you and I are both committed uh, Southern Baptists. That's kind of our tribe. We've chosen to, with the good and the bad of it, that's who we are. Talk just for one more second um, about how a pastor in our tribe who maybe says, well, my church isn't very inclusive or my church isn't very diverse. Uh, What is one thing that a church or a pastor of any size and any amount of resources could take one small step to begin to move their church to reflect their community? Yeah, the best thing
1: I can do is is to give you an analogy that I think was true for me in my experience. I don't think it was meant to be this way, but I think it's what I experienced. Uh, for the longest time, I, I, I applaud different groups that I was a part of, whether it's committees. But for the longest time, I felt like I was experiencing unintentional tokenism because the people that would ask me to be part of things have good intentions. Yet I recognize I'm, I'm nothing more than an ornament. I don't really have a voice, although I'm present. And so I think for a minority, specifically me, I'm not, you know, you have a Christmas tree and you have the ornaments on the tree that give it the nice look and bling. And they're normally a variety of ornaments. But then you have the tree stand. Now, the tree stand is more important than the ornaments. You can exchange the ornaments very easily. Of course, you, you can the tree stand as well. But you need the tree stand in order for the tree to, to, to stand straight. For the longest time, I feel like I was never allowed to be part of the stand. I was only allowed to be an ornament on the tree that was easily replaceable. I had no significant part in anything. I was just an ornament that gave a certain look. And so what we really try to change in our church is is, is whoever walks in these doors, they will recognize that anybody here can lead to be part of the tree stand. That we're not just looking for ornaments to put on a tree so we can look to play a part, but we want to actually be an authentic part of what the gospel is calling us to do. And so I would say, let to be very careful. One thing I had to do at this church is every, you know, every six weeks we'd have a gospel song. When I first got here, well, guess who sang the gospel song? The only African-American person that we had in the church. <laughs> like, and so, and we were so proud of ourselves and we would call ourselves diverse and we would applaud ourselves. And, oh, that gospel song made me feel so good. And all we did was, was, we took somebody and we used them as entertainment and used them as a token and pat ourselves on the back, but we never allowed them to lead in any other significant part area of the church, but to sing. That was it. And so we were sending our lay people and our community an unintentional message that if you're a minority, you can play the part of entertainment, but you can't really be a part of the tree stand. So I changed the entire dynamics up of I wanted our leadership and everything that we do to reflect the community. And I would say for the pastor who's saying, hey, what's the first step? I would say don't focus too much on the ornaments on the tree. Focus more on the stand of the tree. Uh, I think that's what people are really looking for. Do I have a voice? Do I have a part to play? Can I be utilized more than just my skin color?
0: Um, Do you understand I have more intrinsic value to offer the kingdom of God and the church? Noe, I just want you to know how much I value our friendship, how much I'm grateful for you being with us on Church for the Rest of Us today. Thank you for being very vulnerable and transparent and sharing your story and your feelings, both in terms of being a pastor, a staff member, just sharing about your journey there at North Phoenix. It means so much to me personally. And I just want you to know that the testimony of your church and your leadership persevering through all of that to being the high-impact, high-visibility church that it is today just uh, fills me with joy. And it's a real testimony to the grace and the goodness of our Lord Jesus who saved both of us. So thank you for being on with us. Look, uh, to all of our listeners, Noe is going to be with us, and some of his team will be there at this year's Sharper Conference on March the 7th. We hope that you will join us too. I can even introduce you directly to the Noah Garcia. Special thanks today to the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary for making this conference possible as one of our sponsors and making it affordable for those who attend. Register for Sharper Conference today at SharperConference.com. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. I'd love for you to follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Scroggins or Check out familychurchnetwork.com to chime in on our blog. We want your feedback on today's podcast. Plus, we want to know what you are doing because we want to learn from you, too. Hey, until next time, this is Jimmy Scroggins, and you've been listening to Church for the Rest of Us.